This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The Christchurch Foundation recently hosted world adventurer Tim Jarvis, who spoke about his reenactment of the famous Shackleton and Worsley Antarctic Expedition of 1914. He's introduced by Amy Carter, Chief Executive of the Christchurch Foundation. Morning, Morena, everyone. Uh, welcome to our beautiful Tapai Convention Centre here in Ōtātahi, Christchurch. My name is Amy Carter, for those of you who have yet to have the privilege to meet. And it's my uh, honour to be the Chief Executive of the Christchurch Foundation. Our role is to grow philanthropy for the betterment of Greater Christchurch. Uh, and we are a global organisation building connectivity across the world back here to make this place better for now and future generations. I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the trustees that I've seen in the room. So we have Humphrey Rolston, our chair, and Graham Dockrell, Marianne Matai as well. So thank you for being, and also our ambassador, Andrew Alice, is at the front, or Andy, sorry, being too formal. Um, uh, and also just on the other end of the world, say a quick hello and a good evening to London who are listening to us now. Uh, so, oh, look, there they are. All right, it's Nick Coward, who's our chair in London. Uh, and there should be Sam and Stu, who are also trustees as well. There we go. And um, so they are our volunteer trustees for our United Kingdom entity, which is a registered charity over there. And they're joining us from the Royal Geographical Society in London, uh, which seemed an appropriate venue. <laughs> uh, it is my utmost pleasure to introduce our friend, adventurer, environmental scientist, Shackleton and Worsley Nutt, Mr. Tim Jarvis. Um, We've been working on a big idea with Tim for a wee while, and um, and that is to bring uh, a treasure, a taonga, back here to the home of the amazing navigator and captain of the Endurance. Was he officially the captain? Yeah, Frank Worsley, who grew up in Akaroa and went to school here in Otatahi Christchurch. What an amazing piece of our history, and one that we don't tell very well as a city. And, and Tim and Alexandra, who will join us soon from London, have very kindly agreed for us to be the guardians of Alexandra's namesake, the Alexandra Shackleton. And today is about beginning the process to give her get her looking ship shape again. Uh, she's looking like she's been through the Roaring Forties, so we need to give her a bit of a tickle up, and um, and then give her a home so that we can celebrate that wonderful story of adversity. Uh, and coming together to beat all the odds and, and save your mates, which I think is a story that resonates to us all. Uh, so Tim is the one you're all here to talk, listen to, so I'll get out of the way and, and leave it to Tim, who can tell a good yarn or two. So thank you very much, Tim. Um, thanks for the warm hospitality I've had here in Christchurch for the last uh, five days. Breakneck schedule, wouldn't have it any other way. Um, warm Warm welcome in contrast to the cold weather, which again is very kind of you to put on the Antarctic weather just for my uh, benefit. Look, this morning I thought I would talk about the journey we did to retrace the expedition of Sir Ernest Shackleton, of course, uh, the Honourable Alexander Shackleton's esteemed grandfather and patron of our expedition. 
Um, it's a wonderful survival story. In fact, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary said it's the greatest survival story of all time. So that's a pretty good endorsement uh, if one were needed. And talk a little bit about the Christchurch connections uh, to boot. And I've only got 25 minutes, so I'm not going to spend too long talking about it. Um, Shackleton's goal, of course, was to cross Antarctica one side to the other. In so doing, trying to, I guess, eclipse what had been achieved already by Scott, who famously, of course, left here in both the Discovery and Terra Nova expeditions from Littleton. So there's a long, proud history of an association with both Scott and Shackleton. Um, the goal was to cross it one side to the other. And of course, Antarctica is a vast place. And for those of you who heard me speak about this before, uh, the size of it is almost impossible to conceive. It's 52 times the size of New Zealand, in fact, 58 times the size of the UK. Sorry about that, London. Uh, New Zealand's a little bit bigger. Um, twice the size of Australia, where I'm currently based. And in the US, they were shocked to hear it's even one and a half times the size of the lower 48 states of the US. I did a talk in India once in Delhi, three times the size of India and some 20,000 times the size of poor old Singapore. Uh, even the largest iceberg to break off, in fact, was 15 times the size of Singapore, 195 kilometers long by 37 kilometers wide. So it's a very, very large place uh, indeed. As an environmental scientist, I marvel at the thickness of the ice. It's 2,050 meters average thickness times a place, 52 times the size of New Zealand and 58 times the size of the UK. So most of the world's water that is not in the ocean is locked up in Antarctica's ice, which is a remarkable, remarkable fact in its own right. This shot here is actually uh, my tracks coming towards you in a bid to cross Antarctica myself. And that mountain was the last thing I saw. And that mountain is almost the same height as Mount Cook, but only the top 100 metres sticks out of the ice. The other three and a bit thousand are buried. Many other peaks not big enough to poke through. You walk straight over the summit, so on your way to the South Pole. Enough of that. To Shackleton and Worsley's great endeavour, of course, it was to cross the place one side to the other. They went down in the endurance. Amy's absolutely right. It was a wonderful partnership between uh, many people, but not least of all the two men. Uh, Shackleton being, of course, the expedition leader and Worsley being the very accomplished skipper of endurance. And then subsequently, the James Caird, the boat that did the crazy rescue journey across the Southern Ocean. Now, uh, they sailed down the eve of the First World War. They got to Antarctica, but of course, the pack ice had other ideas and stopped them short of the coast. They got within about 70 kilometers of the coast before the pack ice closed in around the hull of the ship and, and ultimately crushed the life out of the vessel. In the end, when the ice that had crushed the vessel moved apart, there was nothing to hold her up. The hull had been holed. Down she went, and you can imagine... The 27 men who travelled with Shackleton were in a considerable state of panic, a controlled panic, when the ship went down. And as the story has it, apparently he gathered everybody around him and said, men, today we will go home. And said this with this wonderful confidence that perhaps he had no right to use, because how on earth were they going to save themselves from the circumstances in which they found themselves? And this is where the legend of, I guess, Shackleton's leadership really clicks into gear. The ultimate crisis leader, for situations like this. It had been said that for speed across the ice, there is Amundsen for scientific research, there is Scott, and in times of trouble, pray God for Shackleton. And indeed, this proved to be the case here, where 
he brought to bear all of these clever techniques to keep everybody feeling that he had the measure of these circumstances, playing football on the ice and doing slide nights and things like that. All things you don't really expect to do if death is imminent. And it gave the men the confidence that he could get them through this. In terms of leadership take-homes, because, of course, many people now teach uh, Shackleton's leadership, quite rightly so, including NASA and many of the world's leading management schools. Key lessons, he was a pragmatic optimist, my words, not his, but someone who told it like it was. I think he would very much appeal to the New Zealand mentality in doing things. You just tell it like it is and you get on with finding solutions to the problem. And that's what he did with this. And I think we can apply some of that thinking to many of the world's issues we're faced with today. Don't sugarcoat them, but get on with the solution to the problem. He was also a wonderful people person as was, of course, Worsley. But he had this incredible, what we call now emotional intelligence, this ability to know that a group of people are all different. If you want to get a team pulling in the same direction to achieve a singular goal, you have to approach each person with a slightly different version of the story. You've got to use language that you think will resonate with them. This was such a clever way. He was so empathetic with the way he approached uh, each man. Famously, he, you know, had... Points of difference with the Australian photographer, Frank Hurley, but they both enjoyed playing cards. And so they would play cards whenever they were going to have a tricky conversation about a topic, normally to do with how much photographic equipment Hurley could carry on the next leg of the mission. So Shackleton had this tremendous ability to engage with people that what makes him such a legendary leader and what makes the lesson so relevant to, to today. They spent 10 months on the stricken endurance. They spent a further five months living on the pack ice in a selection of tents and under the upturned boats, the expedition lifeboats, of course, which the James Caird was one. Before the ice one night broke up, the ice may have been the size of the room in which we meet here. It broke up in the middle of the night. In that situation, obviously, you turn the boats the right way up, you get in them and you paddle for your lives. And the nearest place to reach for them was a place called Elephant Island, where this famous shot was taken, early shot. They fell ashore. They had been 20 months at sea by this stage, much of it probably expecting the worst. So when they arrived here, of course, they celebrated. They had saved themselves. They had reached terra firma, albeit Elephant Island, an unpopulated island to this day because of its inhospitable nature, its glacier fronts coming straight out of the ocean, vertical ice cliffs, not on the way to anywhere. Shackleton knew that nobody would find them there. Only thing for it, get in the most seaworthy of the three boats. Take the five strongest men, although on closer examination, you realize the five strongest, in fact, were the three strongest and perhaps the two biggest troublemakers, <laughs> Vincent and McNeish, and head off across the Southern Ocean destination the nearest place where there were people that they could reasonably expect to reach, which is an island called South Georgia. 54 degrees south. Middle of the Atlantic at the bottom is the best way of describing it. In order to get there, they were in a keelless boat with planks taken off the other two that were now going to remain permanently on Elephant Island. Planks taken just to stop waves crashing in and sinking the boat en route. 1,500 kilometers across the roughest ocean in the world. Two storms and a hurricane. Mountainous seas. People in London should know we're meeting in the convention center here and the ceiling is pretty high, but the ceiling to floor height of 
peak to trough of waves can be twice the height of the ceiling in here. In a keelless rowboat with a ton of rocks taken off the beach for ballast in the absence of a keel. Six men wearing cotton smocks, woolens, leather boots designed for crossing the driest, windiest continent in the world, not an open boat journey that's wet. A sextant to navigate by. They saw the sun only twice in 17 days. To get latitudinal noonday sights, if you're interested as a sailor, to find this dot in the ocean that is South Georgia. Had they missed it, next land is Namibia, 4,000 kilometers further on. You don't turn around and head back and have another go at South Georgia if you see it passing you by in the rear view mirror. You've got one chance to get to it because the winds and currents that have propelled you up there will not allow you to turn around and sail back upwind to reach it. Against all the odds, they made it. They arrived on the wrong side of the island, on the southwestern side, that logical, they'd come from the south. The whaling stations that were their salvation were on the northern side. In between was a mountain range that had never been climbed. They had no climbing equipment. They weren't expert mountaineers. They had one length of rope, a carpenter's adds for climbing equipment, nails taken out of their packing cases, pushed back through the soles of their boots for grip, eating pieces of congealed, rendered down animal fat from the seals they've been forced to kill while on the ice. They made the first ever crossing of the mountains of South Georgia in a time that Reinhold Messner, the world's greatest mountaineer, after perhaps Sir Ed, was unable to replicate when he did it many years later with Gore-Tex and sat phones and eating Mars bars and all the modern stuff. Truly, the greatest survival journey of all time. They reached the whaling station, raised the alarm, saved everyone. I was asked to do this by my dear friend, the Honorable Alexander Shackleton, who you'll hear from in a moment. And of course, I was honored, very honored, deeply honored to be asked to do it. Fair to say that the Shackleton journey had always been out there. Everybody knows the story that greatest survival journey for someone who'd done expeditions in the soft modern way, Gore-Tex, pulling carbon Kevlar sleds. This was a departure for me. I had done one expedition, one other expedition, the old way, for which Alexandra had congratulated me. I retraced the journey of a guy called Douglas Mawson, a contemporary of both Worsley and Shackleton, expedition where both his colleagues died and Mawson had been accused potentially having had to cannibalize the second man who died in his arms, the first one having fallen in a crevasse. So I did it the way he said it happened, eating a starvation ration without the need to eat poor old Mertz, doing it really to honor Mawson, not to prove or disprove cannibalism. I fell over the finish line, 32 kilos I lost in weight, metal in fillings contracting in the extreme cold after long exposure, dropping out fell over the finish line and was congratulated warmly by Alexandra, who said, have I got a challenge for you? And I began the process of planning, along with her very considerable assistance, the Shackleton Epic Expedition. How do you do it without going into too much detail? You work back from the outcome you seek to achieve, which is to rebuild the boat, recruit a team of people capable of doing the journey, having the money, the resources, the logistics, the knowledge of how to traditionally navigate, everything that you need to enable yourselves to follow in the footsteps of these great men of old. 
we need to apply that kind of thinking with some of the big issues we face with today. Work back from the goal we seek to achieve with stuff put in place designed to actually achieve it. Think of climate change in that context. You need the right team. Of course, Sir Ernest apparently, perhaps apocryphally, ran an advert saying men wanted for hazardous journey. Months of bitter cold darkness, <clears throat> honour and recognition in case of success, low wages, safe return doubtful. <clears throat> 3,000 applicants for 27 places. I didn't propose to take on 27 people and leave 22 of them stranded on Elephant Island while we did this thing, but I did need five people crazy enough to want to join me on the journey to make this last bit of the journey a reality. Elephant Island to South Georgia, replica of the boat, no cheating, no EPIRBs, no guidelines, life jackets, just old school, relearning traditional navigation, cotton smocks, leather boots, woolens, eating lard, cooked on a primus stove, navigating with a sextant. Get to the mountains, see if we could do it with no equipment. That's the basic gist of the story. And unbelievably, we had 300 people who put their hands up to come. And the five who came, I'll briefly mention, they deserve far longer, but uh, from the back, Nick Bubb, White Beanie, I believe he came here to Christchurch a few months ago and saw the boat, which is very exciting. He's a round-the-world sailor from the UK. Uh, very, very accomplished Volvo racer and other things, several hundred thousand sea miles under his belt. I liked him. I like the cut of his jib, excuse the uh, the, the poor kind of naval comment. Um, he, I, I, The way I run expeditions, I say, look, people can say whatever they like about me, the planning, the budgets, the way it's being run. But if you raise an issue, I expect you to at least raise a solution in parallel to that. We don't want grumbling, we want solutions. When I first met Nick, I told him about the expedition and he listened very intently. And after about 10 minutes, he said, look, I think we're going to die on the Southern Ocean, the way you've got things planned. However, here are my thoughts that allow us <laughs> to still do this the way Shackleton did and Worsley did, without erring away from the way they did it. We might actually get through this thing, and I like that. That's pragmatic optimism to me. So he was in. He said, we need Paul Larson, Beige Beanie, seven world records. Fastest sailor in the world is one of those. He's from Melbourne. 64 and a half knots, if you're interested. I said to him, we're a bit slower. 62 knots slower, roughly than what you used to. <laughs> Seb Coulthard, three from the front, petty officer in the Royal Navy, fixed helicopters for a living until recently. Perfect guy to project manage the construction of our boat and now your boat. The Alexandra Shackleton did a wonderful job of that. Two from the front, Barry Gray, my climbing partner and good friend. Regimental Sergeant Major, recently retired Royal Marines and former head of outdoor survival for the combined armed forces of the UK. Claim to have a sense of humour, Baz, which nobody disputed. Actually, he's a very funny guy. He was also our cook. So just when things were really bad, he'd rustle up some lard. And just as you'd been sick on the person next to you for the third time, up would come a camping mug with this viscous kind of wobbling substance in a, in a metal tin. And you'd be forced to nick that. Not very pleasant. Guy at the front, Ed Wardle, summited Everest three times. Also the UK's former freediving champion. We knew he'd survive, right, if the boat sank. Great team of people, <laughs> recruit better than you. So many lessons one could tell, but not the time to do it, nor the place this morning. And this is the boat that, of course, is named after Sir Ernest's granddaughter and our patron, Honourable Alexandra Shackleton. Wonderful vessel. 
if I can say it, not really very well suited for the journey she undertook. No keel, as you can see, which is vertical that sticks down out of the bottom. Many, many things I could say about her. But perhaps the two things I'll leave you with is, first of all, we ran a risk assessment of things we felt could go wrong, and it ran to 171 line items of the spreadsheet. That <laughs> size was our biggest fear. Should she have gone over? Um, there would have been two people on the helm. It took two to steer in rough sea state, of which we had a lot. We didn't have a tiller, a kind of arm that linked to the rudder to give you mechanical advantage. We had ropes pulled left and right. One man wasn't physically strong enough to pull those in a storm situation. That would have been two. It would have been a storm in which you'd gone over. Those two would be in the water. And your survival time, because we tested it, not to failure, obviously, but we tested at the Cold Water Immersion Laboratory in Southampton how long someone could tread water in cotton smocks and woolens in zero degrees Celsius water. And it's about 10 minutes until you lose the ability to tread water and sink. That gave us a feel for how long we needed, we had to get the boat back upright again to rescue anyone who'd fallen in. But in several years of sea trialing, we never managed to rewrite the boat when she went over. There's no keel for the sea to get purchase on. You've got the whales, you got sails and the, and the masts pointing downwards. They're like a break. You've got four men on board. The only way we did it once in controlled circumstances was actually to open the air vents on the deck of the boat, pointing down, let in water, and then fumble in darkness, turn them off. Then you have another three or 400 kilograms of water in there in the boat. By the time the water's up to about here, then when the wave picks you up, tips that water to one side, the men go the same direction. It's combined weight of men and water that get the writing moment to happen. But we never managed to do that in 10 minutes either. So we knew going into this thing that capsize would have spelt death, certainly for the two people on the deck of the boat. Um, really quite something to uh, to know that. Um, but, uh, you know, it was uh, an amazing Thing, but it allows you to build resilience to the team if everybody knows those are the kind of ground rules. In fact, of the 171 line items of stuff that could go wrong, 30 remained unresolved when we pushed off from Elephant Island. But at least you all know, and you've entered into this kind of compact that you all agree that's the way it's going to roll. Um, life on board, not you know quite as much fun as you might think. Um, we live six men in the space smaller than the tables around which you're meeting here in Christchurch today. You know, there's no beds lying down, cushions, it's rocks and camera batteries, the equivalent weight of Shackleton's 1,050 kilos. In fact, Shackleton and Worsley did have a disagreement about the amount of ballast. Worsley said, that's far too much. The sea will come over the back of us and sink us. And Shackleton said, look, I'm more concerned about going down the face of a wave and being turned. I think we should be as low as possible. And they agreed to disagree very amicably on it. And at the end, Worsley said, you know, might have been right on that one, I think. Uh, the fact that we've made it um, suggests that perhaps you you were right. I'll, I'll let you have that one. But, you know, life on board, one hour on the helm, sea crashing in, feet numb after 10 to 15 minutes, you've got to do an hour on the helm of the boat in a cotton smock and woolens, and you're borderline hypothermic all the way through. Think of two days ago here on the Banks Peninsula wearing modern waterproof gear, getting into huts and drinking tea, and it was pretty bad, but much colder, minus five to minus 10 with very strong wind speeds and wet and, and seas crashing over you, no fun whatsoever. You do your one hour, bang on the hatch, next person would come up, you'd go down, sit down, and everyone would move along, run one, and the, the, the next unfortunate guy would be up on deck. And believe me, when you've been woken from a state of semi-slumber, 
and the hatch opens, you've got the maelstrom of the Southern Ocean out there, maybe at night, maybe in a storm. And the first thing you do when you've kind of woken is reach out your hand, you grab the two ropes, you are now in control of the vessel. You squeeze up, the other guy squeezes down, hatch shuts, and it's you. And you're there with all the Southern Ocean has to offer, looking at a compass with a candle in the back of it for navigation, trying to keep the boat going north as best you possibly can. With waves coming in, you don't even see from all sides and going down the face of big waves. As the boat begins to bury itself, you're worried it's going to be pitch pole end over end and or turn sideways. Look, it's, I do a lot of mountaineering, but frankly, this is far more frightening. You know, at least on land, the ground beneath you theoretically is solid. At sea, everything is is on the move, and I'm sure many of you are sailors and can appreciate that. And we did have two storms. This shot was taken by the boat that towed us to the start point at Elephant Island, took that shot as we headed off into the first of the storms, and then left us. Uh, we didn't have a hurricane, but we certainly had two storms. We had 52 knots of wind, uh, the strongest wind speed we had, but big sea state where the sea is going in a particular direction and then the wind comes in from a different direction. And of course, the sea is just a mess of standing waves. Much could be said about this, but it was a, a really challenging experience. I'm fast forwarding because in the interest of our time, we managed to arrive at South Georgia. That too was fraught with difficulty because of course we had to land where Sir Ernest and Frank Worsley and the team had landed which was King Harkin Bay, and the wind and the weather we got the day we got there was not conducive to that, so we had to force it. You're in a lee shore, winds and currents pushing you into the lobster pot of South Georgia. There's no turning around and tacking back up wind to escape. You've got no keel and no ability to do that. You're going in. Question is how soft your landing is. Meanwhile, South Georgia, the mountains come straight out of the sea. The highest one is is about 3,000 metres high. They look like the Southern Alps. Very impressive, jagged alpine peaks straight out of the ocean. We got so close to the rocks, we felt the spray coming off them. We could smell the dankness of the vegetation. We had these boiling cauldrons of submerged rocks all around us, and it was a pretty terrifying approach. And we scraped literally around into King Harkin Bay where they'd landed 100 years before us. And when we got there, we were just frankly in a state of relief that's relief. That's not elation. <laughs> and then we had five days of the worst weather South Georgia can throw you. We had 85 knot winds. Bowled over all our tents. We obviously couldn't um, shelter under the boat as they had done. The boat needed to still be seaworthy to sail her out of there. You can't leave a boat, nor did we want to, on the beach of South Georgia as they'd done with the cared. So we were in tents. They got destroyed. We ended up in a cave drinking the Shackleton whiskey as we were required to do under our contract. I said, Paige, you must drink it. We said, okay, we'll drink it. But, so look, it was very challenging times for me and I was desperately trying to take notes from the Shackleton playbook. You know, how do we keep people motivated, keep them busy, keep them deliberately a bit myopic so they don't see the enormity of what still lies ahead. Meanwhile, two of the guys' feet were in such poor shape, they weren't going anywhere. The plan had been three sailors, three climbers. The sailors were now don modern gear, joined with two climber cameramen in modern gear, and me, Baz, and Ed will stay in the old stuff. And Shackleton Cream Worsley style cross the mountains with them as our backup because there's no one else on South Georgia. At the time, there were 12 people living on the far side, and they're not the SAS. They are the penguin biologist, the doctor, you know, the government administrator, 
diesel mechanic. They're not going to come and get you. No helicopters, no air support nearest place, Falklands. You just got to go on, on your own. And it was very, very challenging indeed. And we left on the fifth night. Most climbing happens at night. As soon as the sun's on the mountain, everything starts moving. Snow, ice, avalanches down. So a lot of you get your Kodak moment at the top if you're lucky, but all of the climbing actually happens normally looking at a small pool of light from your head torch until you get to the summit, aware of the vastness around you and the drop, but really focused on a small patch of light. Same for us. We headed off. Night five. I looked round, couldn't see the cameramen anywhere. They had little head torches, modern gear. They decided it wasn't for them. Conditions were very, very rough. Baz came back to one of the two camera guys who was down on his haunches saying, I'm in too much pain, I can't go on. Offered a few friendly words of guidance. Learned to the military that I won't repeat this morning. Nothing doing. The guy was scared. You know what? We were all in this for the love of it. We were owners of this thing, not employees. No one got paid. We did it for the love and to celebrate what these great explorers of old had managed to achieve. Iron men, wooden boats, you know, as they used to call them. We had to evacuate them. All our tents were blown away. And then we really were back to basics. You know, we only had the three of us in the old gear and everyone else had gone. And you can cry about all the problems that have come your way or you can sort of celebrate them. And we thought, can you believe it? We're left with the same three as on the early expedition. Shackleton team leader, I guess my role, hard man of the expedition, Tom Crean, who is Baz for us. And of course, Paul Larson, who was our Frank Worsley, the navigator. And we celebrated that. We thought maybe they're up there somewhere in the mists of South Georgia, pulling the strings to give us this experience even closer to what they went through. It was a remarkable, almost spiritual moment. And so many challenges with the trip. So many challenges with the mountaineering. It's not about climbing up, it's climbing down that's the danger on South Georgia. You're on the high ground, you ascend gently, and it's a series of very steep, treacherous descents. The first is the tridents, which are these mountains here, like knuckles sticky out of the ice cap, big pyramidal granite uh, obelisks that stick up. You've got to find and follow the way down between them. 500 meters down about a 45 to 50 degree slope down to the glaciers below. And we marveled at what they'd done when they got to the same spot because, of course, they got on their backsides and slid. Too tired to climb down, darkness and bad weather coming in from behind. Amazing what they did. We thought no point us doing the same. Big crevasse with a wall displaced. We would have hit that and kind of gone in and died. So we thought no point after all this killing ourselves for the sake of historical accuracy. Let's climb down, get past that, and then we'll slide. We did it from about two-thirds of the way down, even that was a thrill. And then, of course, you're down in the glaciers of South Georgia, which have changed very dramatically from their day to ours. So there's a climate narrative in the background of this whole story. In the 92% of the glaciers on South Georgia are now in wide-scale uh, retreat. And in fact, the glaciers that Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley crossed, they had three to cross. We only had two. The third for us was a lake. That glacier is no longer present. And we fell in many times, you know, sometimes just up to the knee, sometimes to the waist, sometimes all the way in, about 20 times over the course of 96 hours crossing because we had to keep moving in any conditions. So no point showing you whiteout, but we did have that set of weather conditions quite often and you just 
you just feel a sense of weightlessness, then hopefully a tug on the rope indicating that Baz and Paul had got you. Baz and I were at either end of the rope. Paul was in the middle as the sailor. That's the team we had. Baz and I just alternated and took it in turns to fall in, I guess is the best way of putting it. But Baz, what a legendary climber he he is. Couldn't have done it without his ability. And just I thought I'd quickly show you this. This is not us, nor is it Shackleton and Worsley. It's actually someone called Duncan Cass crossing the last glacier. And you've got to think that Shackleton and Worsley and Cream were going left to right of screen to reach the whaling station. The glacier for them was already out to the to the breaking waves, but for Cass in the 1950s, he was just going around exploring South Georgia. It had already retreated. I went back just pre-COVID, and that glacier sadly has gone altogether. It's now um, some seven and a half kilometers back up the valley. Um, very confronting to uh, see it. 96 hours, and we arrived at Stromness Whaling Station, but really it had been six years. And we'd become so adept at breaking the big challenges down into small pieces, it actually felt like just the end of that shift, navigating, and and we sat down and then realised we didn't have to lift ourselves to keep going. And of course, it took many months and in fact years to really take on board the fact we'd achieved only a bit of what they'd achieved didn't sink the endurance, miss out on the dream of crossing Antarctica, leave 22 men on Elephant Island. All the while thinking, how will the public receive this when we return? With all the financial and reputational side aspects to that, we just done the last bit and that was challenging. Challenging enough. And I'm out of time, but I'll just finish on just a couple of comments. You know, we often get asked, or questions I often get asked, from high-end corporate organizations all the way down to kindergarten kids. One of the most popular is how do you go to the toilet in minus 40? The answer is quickly. You know, I think we all have the ability to be good leaders. We've just got to find something we're passionate enough to take ourselves and others on the journey to try and achieve. And certainly Worsley and Shackleton were fantastic leaders and we need to channel some of the resilience and the problem-solving ability and their outlook on life, their pragmatic optimism many of the issues we're faced with in the modern world and why it helped to have been asked by Alexandra Shackleton who I'll introduce now but of course we did it to one of those great explorers of old and all that they had managed to achieve because we really do need to go back through the notebook and take some of the, the wisdom and the lessons and the resilience they stood for and apply them in our modern world we need a dose of Shackleton, Worsley and Cream in this modern world. Thank you for listening. And I I think my next role, um, hopefully we get a chance to talk further as you eat your breakfast, which in no way resembles what we had on board, the Alexandra Shackleton. Before I introduce her namesake, the Honourable Alexandra Shackleton, who's a very dear friend, um, friend to me, friend to the expedition, uh, great ambassador for Serena Shackleton's legacy and the legacy of this expedition, and of course the expedition patron and the one who gave me the honour of leading this uh, this great endeavour. Over to Alexandra in London. Thank you. My thanks to the Christchurch Foundation.
uh, for inviting me to be here. It, it, it is an honor, and I'm absolutely delighted to see Tim again, of course. When I heard about the plans for taking the little boat, my namesake, to Akaroa, I ignored rude remarks about needs a bit, needs a bit of refurbishment, etc. Well, we can't take everything personally. But what better place for the little, little boat to be than Akaroa, home of the genius and navigator, Frank Worsley? It is, I hope that it'll go well, and I'm sure it will be there. Well, I've had the honor of being patron of quite a few expeditions that are set forth in my grandfather's name. But I have to say that this expedition, in fact, I had a rule at one stage, sounds rather showing off, not more than four in a year, that would be vulgar. <laughs> anyway, Tim's expedition, I have to say, is probably nearest to my heart, because it got close to the spirit of my grandfather. Someone worked out once that the effort, doing anything in that era with those, those clothes, was double the effort a modern, modern explorer has. And as for the food, well, they, Tim originally got the recipes for food for my press cuttings, but because they had been living for months on the ice, their poor stubbers couldn't cope. They had to go and have army iron rations. But in every other way, navigating by the stars, uh, the huge, horrible conditions on, on, on board, you have to, you're not allowed to land in South Georgia without what I call a nanny boat. But the nanny boat was so far away, in fact, that if anyone had fall, fallen overseas, it would have been extremely bad. Well, the interest goes on. I've actually spoken in 17 countries about my grandfather. And, the, and you might say why. This is my grandfather who was 47 when he died. I didn't know him. He died 101 years ago this year. His legacy, is, as Tim said, is defined in one word, his leadership, the way he led his men. Today, just one example. When they were living in tents on the ice with the Weddell Sea surging beneath, he personally decided who would be in each tent, which the leader would have to do. It would be normal for, that, normal for that era, put the officers together and the men. He didn't. He sprinkled them, as it were, because he knew them. He knew their personalities. And he encouraged them above all, not just loyalty to him, but loyalty to each other and to the expedition as a whole. He also arranged lots of treats. He knew that people in dire circumstances, what more, they didn't know how long they would last, need treats. So birthdays were celebrated, a lot of attention was played to food. There were, fo there were football ma matches, dog races, a lot went on. And all the time my grandfather was watching his men, getting to know them. I think that's one of his greatest achievements. And I am very sad I didn't get to know him. My grandfather doesn't usually die at 47. But I think it's absolutely wonderful that the, the, that the, early Shaka, the Alexander Shackle went up in Akaroa. I've only one complaint to make him, that I was never given a little voyage in her, which I would have liked. And obviously that would happen. I did actually meet the expedition in South Georgia, which was wonderful, once they dug the climb. And as for the climb, my grandfather did 30 miles in 36 hours. So he wasn't a climber. It's all of a sudden... I wouldn't say resentment, sadness for people like Tim who are climbers that didn't get anywhere near that figure. <laughs> and at one stage, my grandfather's books described the crossing and they were a particularly dangerous place. And they could hardly move and tinkle, tinkle, little bits of ice were going, going hundreds of feet below. And Tim told me afterwards he'd done the climb. He thought that was an exaggeration. When he got to the same place, it wasn't. It was just as bad. So there you are. Good luck to the Alexandra Shackleton and to Akaroa. And I will hope to visit her there. Thank you fortunate as a city to be given this great honour to look after this treasure and to help tell an epic story and then connect it here to our place. Uh, so today marks the beginning of us fundraising to repair the Alexandra. So when, when the Honourable Alexandra comes out for the opening of our new place, <laughs> we can um, literally have a wee float around the Nakaroa Harbour and she'll be seaworthy enough for that. So that's my promise to you, Alexandra. 
Thank you. So we're beginning with a talking to people about who may want to contribute to a repair. I'm very pleased to announce that joining us today, uh, just in the corner, is Tristan, who's an old family friend of mine who's agreed to oversee her repair. And we've been meeting with Seb Coulthard, who you saw a picture of in the UK, who's agreed to help us source all the materials from the Royal Navy. So we're actually doing it in the right way. Um, we hope that she'll have a home in Akara. That's what we're working too hard. We're navigating through securing the right home for her there. In the meantime, we thought we'd get on and making her ship shape. If you want to gift it, just give Hannah or I a call. We'd happily talk to you through how we can make this happen. Um, it's We don't actually know what it will cost, but we'll just work our way through that process. So generosity is uh, encouraged. Um, so thank you. I, I'm sure you'll agree it's been a rather special day and what a treat to have the Honourable Alexandra Shackleton and Tim joining us at the beginning of our adventure. And we look forward to having them back in the very near future to drink some champagne and cut a ribbon. Thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to adventurer Tim Jarvis speak about his reenactment of the famous Shackleton and Worsley Antarctic Expedition of 1914. This talk was hosted by the Christchurch Foundation.